Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, yeah, it's Martin Ware here. How are you? Welcome to my podcast, Electronically Yours. We've got a very special edition today. My very, very good friend, Animatronic from Scissor Sisters, well, ex Scissor Sisters actually, who's now a big radio DJ on Radio 2. She does lots of stuff to do with disco. It's called Disco Devotion, her show that's on a Saturday night. Um, and she's quite an amazing character. Um, she grew up in, in um, kind of Midwest and uh, her mother's an icon painter, believe it or not. She talks about that in this podcast. Um, how is everybody coping currently with COVID and everything? It's a bit shit, isn't it? Um, there will be swearing in this podcast. I'm trying to encourage as many of the guests to swear as possible and as much as possible because I like swearing. Um, not pointless swearing, just to emphasise a point, I suppose. Um, yes, the COVID world, it's a bit of a problem at the moment, isn't it? Um, I veer between kind of numb depression and uh, a belief that it will all improve. But actually, I'm quite preoccupied at the moment because I'm writing my autobiography so I've got plenty of work on um, so I uh, hope you'll all keep a look out for that funnily enough that is going to be called Electronically Yours as well except it's going to be called Electronically Yours Volume 1 because there was so much stuff I had to write that my life kind of takes a natural break around about the end of the 90s was it the end of the 90s? Uh, no, mid-90s, I suppose, when um, Heaven 17 started performing live. Uh, it, it's like two parts to my life, a second chapter, and I thought it would be good to do it in two volumes. Um, that's when I formed uh, my uh, immersive soundscape company as well, with Illustrious, <clears throat> in 2000, with Vince Clark from Eurasia, who is a synth god, as you know. Um... Yeah, so I'm feeling kind of a bit up and down like everyone else. Um, I'd love you to um, email me and let me know how you're feeling. And I'll try and read some of them out. Um, the email address is electronicallymartin, or one word, at gmail.com. So please, I'm looking for ideas for uh, new guests that you'd like me to interview. Uh, I'd like to hear about um, what kind of time you're having at the moment. You know, if I can help out in any way with any advice. I don't know if I can, but I'd like to help. As I mentioned on the first podcast, uh, I'm going to be interviewing a load of people from the music industry, but also I've got a wide range of interests, so I'm, I'm trying to make it more eclectic. So things like creativity in general, like authors and comedians and humorists, writers, uh, people involved in science. I love science. And anything to do with the future and futurology. And, of course, we're always open to talking about electronic music and synthesizers. I want to thank my co-creator, Chas Stook, who helps me put all this together. And um, as I mentioned last time, we're going to do a different synth every week. I'm going to play you some interesting sounds, do a bit of jamming. That's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Anyway, back to Animatronic. Um, she started out as a geek. Who knew? Uh, very insular and into fantasy and stuff. Um, and she 
then she kind of got into the alternative kind of uh, LGBT scene in in uh, New York. And Scissor Sisters took off amazingly around about 2001 when they signed to Polydor. But the pressure of that meteoric rise was something that kind of changed their life, really. And uh, it, it caused a few rifts with her previous band members. She talks about that quite a lot in the podcast. This is a fascinating piece of uh, interviewing. I'm so good. I'm only joking. She's so good. But if you want to uh, understand how artists create a career for themselves out of something that's completely outside the mainstream and then become completely in the middle of the mainstream and cool at the same time, then this is the podcast for you. So here she is, the amazing animatronic. into you growing up and where, what kind of background you were from. So yeah. let's start with your mum and dad. Okay. Shall we? All right. Um, my, um, I was born in 1974, um, the younger of two children. My mother um, was a, uh, an artist. Um, she was, she's an icon painter. So she was really interested in uh, Byzantine depictions of Christian saints and uh, and all that, and uh, Byzantine not necessarily just Byzantine, but any um, any iconographic uh, image of of the Holy Family and their uh, extended family, um, and um, and then my uh, my father Robert um, was a. He actually worked in technology. He um, he worked for a tech company in Silicon Valley that made um, that made uh, DNA synthesizers and really high tech uh, uh, genetic um, equipment. And he was their art director, and he would help make their their uh, their catalogs. Um, and Robert and my mother split uh, when I was about. I think I was three when when they said they were splitting. Uh, this was the late seventies. We were actually living in um, in the Bay Area at the time in in Oakland. I was born in Portland, Oregon, um, and then um, uh, they split up um, officially later on that next year, and uh, and then we moved up to Portland, back up to Portland. My mother, my sister my grandmother and me when I was six. And uh, so Portland is where I grew up. So tell us about Portland, because I, I mean, you know, I know a bit, a bit about it, but maybe people in the UK aren't so aware of what, yeah. what distinguishes it. Portland reminds me of, uh, of, uh, a, few, of a few British cities. Um, it's a small city. Um, Bristol really reminds me of Portland. Uh, it's funky. It's very hilly. It's, uh, on the water. There's, um, the, on the North, there's the Columbia river and then cutting right through downtown Portland is the Willamette river. And it's got a real funky vibe. It's very working class. Manchester, parts of Manchester really remind me of Portland as well. Um, and, um, what's the main industry? Uh, uh, in Portland, it was uh, traditionally logging and lumber um, because it's massive, massive old growth forests and and things like that. But then um, there are a few very large uh, corporations and companies that are in 
uh, Portland, uh, one of them being Nike, the uh, oh. yeah, the sportswear yeah. company there out in Beaverton. And um, and then there's also REI, which is a massive uh, outdoor uh, company. Um, I think they're in Washington now, actually, but um, uh, they have a lot of presence in in Oregon. And then there is a great deal of of tourism in uh, in Oregon as well. And once you leave um, Portland, you it gets very rural very quickly. Um, yeah. yeah. When my mother remarried, uh, we moved to Vancouver, Washington, which is not Vancouver, Canada. It's Vancouver, Washington, which is right over uh, the right over the river into Washington State. And uh, Vancouver um, is an even smaller city than than Portland and has that very kind of like sprawling um what is what are those things called mini mall sort of oh, out God. you know like yeah very suburban and then going into rural areas and right, yeah right. where i went to high school was quite rural in a place called brush prairie washington <laughs> oh that's great and uh, did you have bears and stuff um i think there are bears up there but you would have to go you'd have to go quite far um up to see them but um I had never seen a bear, but you know you see lots, a lot of deer and and uh, yeah, yeah. sometimes you know sometimes you see elk or moose. I've uh, if you're driving up in the mountains, which you do frequently, um, Mount St. Helens, the volcano is not too far away from where my mother lived. Um, her last the one house. that exploded, right? The one that exploded in 1980. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Lewitt is her is her uh native name but um yeah when you drive up there and you see all kinds of crazy moose and things like that you can see moose. mountain lion tracks and things like that it's pretty oh, wild good. yeah so mo moose are enormous aren't they they're, they're they enormous are. yeah they're like i saw a full-grown one with antlers and everything and that sucker had to have been like up to the head i would guess maybe seven feet tall shit yeah it was huge. Wow. It was taller than the car I was in. Crikey. Um, so when you were growing up, let's fast forward a little bit. So yep. obviously everybody's childhood in those kind of environments, probably you did a lot of outdoory type stuff. And I did, yeah. although I was um I was more I was a very insular kid and I really liked I really liked reading, which I still do, and I liked um fantasy films and <laughs> things like that um uh yeah You're a geek. yes for sure and raised by a geek my mother loved horror stories and uh thrillers and you know we had lines of stephen king novels clive barker all kinds mm. of stuff she loved h.p okay. lovecraft all of that um yeah weird and spooky yuki stuff and she was she was raised in new orleans um she was born in monroe louisiana my grandmother her mom was born in mobile alabama so uh, that was a real strong uh influence on her and i think also why she got into um painting religious icons because in new orleans right. all that stuff is everywhere you know there's a there's a lot of um kind of magic down there isn't there Definitely. i mean it, I, I kind of um uh, shall we say like 
old style magic pagan stuff going on i i i believe without yeah. a doubt and then you have the really strong influence of the of the haitian and um and caribbean influence and that obviously brought uh voodoo and hoodoo and that is ma- a massive part there i mean it, it's haunted in the way new orleans is haunted in the way you go to a place like edinburgh and you're like this place is haunted you can feel the history coming out um from every pore and then of course it's got all this crazy you know horrible horrible awful history and then really interesting history with regard to pirates and uh, Native American tribes there, the the Choctaw and all that, really fascinating tribes, the Bayou culture, the Cajun culture, um, the you know all of that, all of that stuff is fascinating. Yeah, and who, um, which of the tribes uh, occupied the territory that is now Oregon? There were a few. The Chinook was really uh, is the main one, right? And then there's the Warm Springs tribe, which they're uh, more f- more out toward uh, Mount Hood. Uh, growing up, I had um, m- one of my mother's very close friends, Evelyn, uh, is full bloated Hopi, and she was born on the reservation in Arizona. And then when she relocated, the Warm Springs tribe adopted her, and so um, so. Yeah, when she needed to get with her people, she would go to the to the Warm, String, Warm Springs uh, Reservation. And my mother was a teacher, um, a multicultural art teacher to young children. And so she was very interested in the native um, native art and uh, native expressions there. And there's there was a chief um, in he, I think he's in southwest Washington, Chief Laluska, uh, who was part of um can't remember what tribe he was part of but um he had a traditional longhouse and kids kids in classes would go there and he would teach them about native stuff so my mother was was quite um quite tight with him uh for a time did you ever accompany her to any of these trips to meet these people oh yeah i mean we went to powwows all the time with evelyn all the time and um uh and they those were really beautiful because you'd have people from tribes all over from um from different tribes so wearing the regalia dancing you see you know parents with their kids and the kids are in their you know small costumes and uh sorry not costumes regalia um and um it it was just it was so beautiful it was it's such a in america we don't really connect to the indigenous culture enough um and and you you have to seek it out but there is this um there is this unbroken line of history that is still here and you can uh you can learn about it and tap into it you have to seek it out um and i'm really lucky that i was exposed to all of that oh, i think it's i think it's fantastic and mm. because you know, to 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 a young lad from Sheffield like me, yeah, um, it seems impossibly glamorous um, to be able to have. Uh, to, well, it must be simultaneously a slight sense of guilt that you you know that obviously that the, their their world has been largely appropriated, 
but um, occupied I, and appropriated. I, I'm fascinated. <laughs> yes. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with all that stuff. My friend Charlie Morrow, who's from Manhattan, he he's a sound artist, and he went to stay with some uh, a, a, a tribe um, near near the Canadian border, I think. Okay. And he he stayed there for three months, and 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 um, to discover the the shamanistic sound rituals that they used to go through. And uh, the stuff that he's taught me, he's going to be another guest on the podcast, Charlie cool. Morrow. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, all about, you know, nowadays we'd say neuro-linguistic programming, sure. about how you can influence people's behavior using gesture and body language, etc. Cool. All that shit is old, right? Yeah, of course. Old, oh, very, very, very old. So anyway, let's move on. Mm. Fascinating Mm-hmm. background um so let's move on to say your uh teenage years can you describe you know when you're trying to define your own personality which obviously you are not short of personality but um <laughs> how, how did you, you said you were a quiet child or oh no i wasn't a quiet child i wasn't a quiet well, child by any means i was a very loud right. boisterous child but i wasn't a, i was my sister was a big tomboy explorer wanted to like, you know, make jumps that she would ride her bike over. And I was a little bit more like I wanted to be safe. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I liked unicorns and dinosaurs. I liked learning about things. I wanted to, um, you know, grow strawberries. And and I was a little bit I guess I would I would I would be more classified as a typical girl child. I was a little bit less, I was a little bit less exploratory and a little bit more kind of into, into the, into the inner world rather than the sort of, I don't know, but I was interested in that too. I just, I would, I would just, I would be totally happy to sit with a cup of hot cocoa and have my grandmother tell me a story. So you had a strong connection with your grandparents, yeah? I had a strong, I have a strong connect. My mother was born in 1935. So she was almost 40 when, when I was born. And then my, my grandmother was born in 1904. And so, um, I just had this really, I had a very, because of that, I had a very interesting scope. My, um, references were so much, older and longer than most of my friends. You know, when I was 10 years old, my, my, (laughs) my birthday party was a private detective party because I was really into (laughs) film noir. And I was, I had a poster of Humphrey Bogart on my wall, you know, so what? Why? That's quite advanced. Because I was into the sort of glamour of like 1940s stuff. Yeah. So that noir thing, I suppose, as well, isn't it? So you, you once told me that you were really goth when you started uh, yeah i was goth uh, in, in, the, in your teenage I, years i was goth yeah. in high school and uh and i wasn't like black hair black lips all that um yeah. there were moments where it kind of because it's the northwest it still veers into kind of like hippie-ish territory so there'd be like lots of mohair sweaters and um and uh long you know necklaces with some cool Uh crystals or something on it kind of it was very witchy actually now that I look back on it I was a you know as a burgeoning witch in training (laughs) um but uh yeah and then at, at like age 15 I discovered my mom's henna and 
Yeah. That was it. That was it. That was Game it. Up. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was growing up, I was very lucky to ha- have a teenage nightclub called the City Nightclub. It was all ages and um, no alcohol was served. Um, and on the ground floor, there was the pop room. And then upstairs, there was the Holly Rock room, which was um, alternative and industrial. So I had a really great place to go and meet people and dance and you were very lucky. I'm so lucky I had that. What age was that? That was uh, the first time I went. I was 15. And then when I was 16, I was an exchange student and I spent the year in South Africa, which was pretty crazy. Um, and that was I I arrived in South Africa about six months after Mandela was released from prison. So it was a really interesting time to be there. Uh, and then I came back um, from that, you know, just being like, fuck this tiny little <laughs> shithole uh, town and this dumb high school and all you dumb people. Um, and my dad had died at that point. Um wow. He died when I was 15. So, you know, I had that sort of kind of nihilistic, nihilistic teenage rage. Fuck everything. I bet you felt like the um, the moorings were coming loose from your from your existing life. And you you were. Yeah. Some some people find this part uh, uh, of their life quite. Uh, difficult detachment and I, funny I, I did a, I did one with Glenn from Hem17 uh, I did a podcast with him yeah. yesterday and he, he left on his 17th birthday to go to London and his mother he's just told me now I never knew this before he said his mother told him later that she cried non-stop for three months oh wow okay they, they just thought and his dad said when he went said you know, you've got to be very careful about uh, about people down there. They'll, they'll, uh, they, you know, they might want to have sex with you. <laughs> but mate, I think he was talking about men because he was yes. a very beautiful, young, skinny yes. thing. You know? Yes. Anyway, so yeah, I was just saying. So when when you decided to um, uh, uh, fledge, yes. Uh, what age was that? Um, well, I was definitely fledging by the time I had a car and living in the suburbs and 17 years old and sneaking out and taking the car, breaking curfew, all of that. And my, my dad, who, uh, this is dad number two, um, who had the the good sense at the time was like, kid, you need to get out, like, go, Mm -hmm. go get yourself a job, get yourself an apartment and go. If you want to be free, go. So I was like, okay. And, um, I, it was three days after I turned 18, I moved into my first apartment with my friend Reed and, um, yeah. And, uh, you walked right into our apartment. There's this big giant poster of Susie Sue. That was me. And then right next to it, a big giant poster of Debbie Harry, which was, uh, Reed. It's Reed's. (laughs) So we had it. Um, and then I went to, I went to community college because I didn't really uh, I was I was intellectual, but I was also kind of lazy. I didn't really want to, like, enter into a university right away. I wanted to, I think, test the waters. And I'm really happy that I did that in retrospect. I just went to uh, community college. I did my prerequisites by that. By the time I was done with it, I was 
um, pretty convinced that I wanted to be a performance artist and they, nobody was really teaching performance art in a, in a college sort of setting at that time. This is like 92. It's very new. And so I just figured, fuck it. I'm moving to San Francisco and I moved to San Francisco with my friend Michael in, um, 96. So I I hung around Portland, Portland, you know, in the nineties, it was very exciting because grunge had exploded. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of music around. There was a lot of interesting things going on. And I joined a burlesque troupe that was, that was, (laughs) uh, four real girls and two Queens. Um, and, uh, and that was basically how I, how I more or less got my start. That's where I met my friend Michael. And then Michael and I moved to San Francisco. And uh, that's where I uh, fell into the, fell in, fell in with the Queens at T-Shack, Tranny Shack, which, um, wow. yeah. and that was really my performance college. Yeah. All right. So I was going to say, where did you learn the skills you needed to be in a burlesque troupe? <laughs> Um, How can I do it? <laughs> from watching Mae West films with my grandmother. Uh, I mean, I, a lot of that, a lot of that was really informed by um, knowing and watching a lot of musical stuff. I mean, you know, I had seen Cabaret. I had seen Sweet Charity. My my father, who was gay uh, and loved musical theater, um, took me to New York for the first time when I was 13. He took me to see a chorus line. Um Starlight Express on Broadway and Cabaret with Joel Grey as the MC, which was fabulous. And so I already had this, I was already in drama. Um, I was in drama when I was um, in high school and was already a performer. There is an annual um, lip sync competition at my my (laughs) school called Air Band. And in... um, this our sophomore year in high school my group won it and we did wow. we did two Susie and the Banshees songs and one song by Book of Love and which won. which Susie songs you did Happy House and no we did uh no we did Peekaboo and Ornaments of Gold which were both are both on the Peep Show album and then we did uh the song Witchcraft by uh by Book of Love over a sort of cauldron-esque pot with dry ice in it Nice. <laughs> Being all very Stygian, you know. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, you know, I toured with Susie and the Banshees. By did the way. you? How was that? Twice. We did two UK tours. It was mental. What um, years were it, they? It was at the peak of um, of their. You know, it's when they first became popular with okay. uh, Hong Kong Garden and okay stuff like that. With um, so like seventy nine, eighty. Uh, yeah, seventy eight, seventy nine. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, they were such lovely people. Budgie especially was was great. And, um, yeah, they, they gave us our first break as a support band. Oh, wow. Um, and they loved us that much. They invited us on to a second tour as well. That's and, great. And, uh, yeah, they're very nice people. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, I've met Susie. She was lovely. and, uh, and Quite quiet. Yeah, well, you know, she's – isn't she a Gemini? Is she a Gemini? I, I don't she's know. She's a Gemini. You know, she's got that mercurial aspect. Uh, what are you? Are you Gemini? No. I'm a Gemini rising, but I'm a Leo. 
and how? Oh, no, I've talked about this before. I'm a, I'm Taurus. I always mm. get on with Leos. Mm-hmm. A couple of my major girlfriends were Leos in the past. Yes. Um, Leos and Virgos I get on with and Librans. They're the ones. Anyway. Moving on, I'm sounding like a hippie now. What's going on? I know. On? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're uh, down in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, where did we get to? So you are going to co- um, performance art college? Did you? Say no, I'm. I'm. I. I am saying uh, no. <laughs> I if yes and no. I I was self studied, and my performance college was a drag bar, and um, um, like Sheffield. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, my friend Michael and I moved to San Fran in 96 and we immediately fell in with, um, with the, the gang at this bar. Um, and it was a night that happened every Tuesday. It was called Tranny Shack. Um, we now call it Tea Shack. Um, and, uh, and the stud actually just recently closed um, during coronavirus. It was San Francisco's longest continually running gay bar. It was there for like almost 60 years, 56 years. Wow. And, um, and now there's a documentary waiting to be made. Yeah, no kidding. And um, the thing with drag at the time, this is 96. So um, if you did drag, it meant that you performed you were trying to quote unquote pass or you were doing very stuff that was very much on the binary. It was very much about um, feathers and, and diamonds and kind of showgirl yeah. stuff, lip syncing to Cher or Diana Ross, that sort of thing. Uh, drag pageants and, and that. And so Heclina, who is the, the, um, the one who founded T-Shack, she didn't see herself reflected in that. She wanted to do drag, but, you know, perform to PJ Harvey or, uh, right. you know, whatever. Um, and and um, so started T-Shack. And the first night I went, uh, it had been going for about six months at that point. And it, the theme that night was Pat Benatar lip sync wars. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the co-host was a was a a a bio girl, um, a biological female, a, a okay. lady drag queen named Dina Davenport. So I immediately off the bat knew that I would be accepted as a as a performer there, despite the fact that I, um, you know, was uh, am a cisgendered female. Um, and uh, and so I was there the next week. My. <laughs> My first number was uh, was to Nina Hagen, born in six six, um, and uh, yeah, I was there. I was there pretty much every Tuesday from then on. Wow! Did you meet uh, Nina Hagen? We, I've never met, met Nina Hagen. Yeah. I um, we, we performed yeah. with her uh, on uh, on a couple of TV shows in Germany. Actually, wow! I she bet is, she's a trip. She was wild. Yeah, I, mean, I bet out there. I bet. Well, I mean, you know, she I wasn't she kicked out of East Germany when you're kicked out of East Germany. You have to be pretty <laughs> out there. But but when yeah, uh, yeah, I think she was. But when we <laughs> met her again, um, I think it was about 10 years ago. She was obviously um, not 
very young, but I mean, she was still as crackers as when we first met her. <laughs> you know, when she was, a, she st- she's like the, the queen of crackers, you know. I love her anyway. so much. She is bonkers. Yeah. I love her so she much. Is, yeah, bonkers, that's the word, yeah. Uh, yes, so where are we then? Great. This is all great stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think we might make this the first episode that I broke. Oh broadcast. goodness! Okay, <laughs> I um, think you made it the top of the charts. Now I just need to get over your charts in terms of friends in the UK. That's no, like, you are <laughs> your number. Hey man, number one, Sheffield. Come on, number one for now. Yeah, <laughs> I know you, you kind of showbiz people. Anyway, moving on. So next, what what's happening next? So I suppose we'd better move on to um, how far are we away from? Scissor Sisters? Only yeah. a few years. Because so I was 96 to 99 in San Francisco, very formative, very, you know, yeah. very, very uh, formative and informative years. And um, and then I moved to uh, New York in 99. And the same friend who I moved to San Francisco with had moved to New York. And I uh, I went to visit him and he's just said, Ani, you have to move here. You have to move here. The time is right. Giuliani was mayor. Uh, fuck that guy. And uh, he, that guy. he basically destroyed nightlife. Or nightlife was really, really taking a a a, a bad turn. You yeah. would. Um, he had invoked these very archaic laws called the cabaret licensing laws that go back to prohibition that um, limited dancing. And so uh, the um, you couldn't have dancing in your establishment and alcohol unless you had one of these cabaret license licenses. And so um, uh, you would walk into into bars and there would be big, these big giant signs that say no dancing. And it's like, what? Shit. The, are we in Footloose? What the fuck is this? And um And, uh, yeah, it was just very weird. And so there was this, um, and it was, this was post Michael Allig and the clubland murders of, uh, you know, in the club, club kid scene had really, you know, taken a nosedive and, uh, Jackie 60, which was the, the sort of era defining club, um, closed its doors in 99. And, uh, and so it was really ripe for for experimentation and stuff to come around so my friends and i started a club called knockoff and the whole idea was that it was basically just a knockoff of all of our favorite clubs so (laughs) we had a midnight drag show and dancing and um even though we weren't allowed to have dancing and um and it was at a place called the slipper room which is still there um not in the same location but just above it and um uh yeah so and that's where i met jake through through my friend andy uh who met him and we met we'd actually met once before i guess but we really really met on halloween night and uh i was dressed as this character that i have named plasticine porter who is a Andy Warhol factory reject. Oh, um, great. And, uh, and then Jake was a late-term back-alley abortion. Oh, my God. <laughs> he had been to a, a party with his friend earlier who was the morning-after pill, but she oh. they, had, they had at that point split and <laughs> gone their separate that ways. That is so. funny and transgressive. Very transgressive. And then he actually um, performed as the 
amazing dancing back alley abortion at knockoff. And good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was dragged on stage in a trash bag by no. um, oh my by my my friend Reagan, whose drag <laughs> whose drag name is Mangela Lansbury. <laughs> so, yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. Yeah. Touche. Yeah. And um, wow. So yeah. now we're getting into some deep stuff yeah, now. We're getting into some gritty. extremely. Um, dark but funny kind of uh, ironic stuff that was what we were all about i mean we when i try to talk when i talk about it now it sounds really bad uh because at well well let me tell you i mean at t-shack we had we had uh, um a good a good portion of our uh performers regular performers uh were um had mexican heritage um, and about half of us, and um, we had wetback night, <laughs> and uh, it was hosted by my friend Lady Sergio. You know, and so I say that now, and it sounds really bad. But can you then explain it, what wetback is for? Wet, uh, that is a derogatory term for someone who crosses the border from Mexico to oh, America oh. illegally. Say they um, they swim over the Rio Grande. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Wow. So they okay. Are wet back. Yeah. yeah nice. Um, and uh, and so, uh, yeah. So my friend Sergio did uh, "Borderline" by Madonna, and there's all this chicken wire with barbed wire, and then he has um, hot INS agents, which was ice back in the day. So two hot INS agents working <laughs> out behind him, and um, I dressed up as Frida Kahlo and lip synced to Pixies' "Isla de Encanta," and it and it ended up being this very. Um, it actually when 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 you looked at it, it was a celebration of Mexican heritage and people really working out their stuff, and you know we were the era of AIDS, we were watching our friends die, yeah. you know, young, beautiful, vital people um, just get sapped of everything and die. And the, the government didn't seem to care. Um, you know, it was a disease that affected gay people and drug addicts. And, and um, yeah, so we oh. were processing a lot of dark shit. So when yeah, I yeah. when I talk about, you know, tranny now, the word has become a derogatory term. And back then it was, uh, you know, it was really embracing the darkness and saying, you are welcome here no matter what your expression is. You don't have to be a drag queen and a, a glamorous drag queen. You can come if you look like you were just dragged through a swamp you know you can you can come in mom drag if you are transgender <laughs> you you can come and you're welcome here if you're a transvestite and you you know we had there was a regular uh who would come almost every tuesday nobody really knew what i mean i think some people n- knew what he did otherwise but he, he called himself fifi and wore a little beret no wig a, a little bit of lipstick goatee long dangly earring and like a little negligee and heels and loved like you know coming and feeling that 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 
femininity and and that it, that was Fifi's brand of femininity femininity so no matter what brand of gender expression you wanted to have you were welcome at at T-Shack and there was a real um coupled with with this sort of darkness that everybody was processing was this like in, intense sense of of humor and like let's filter all of this through this like you know <laughs> John yeah. Waters-esque John Waters and Russ Meyer informed aesthetic so it was very uh, much Russ Meyer my, deformed my sexual upbringing <laughs> I'm, I, I, I really credit Russ Meyer with, uh, with you know my accepting my body type because I've always been a very curvy lady and in the early in the early 90s it was all about heroin chic and and kate moss and how skinny can you be and i didn't see myself represented at all in fashion and then when um betty page had a resurgence all of a Mm. sudden it was it was you know i was i was looking at these old images and seeing that once upon a time um yeah, I, uh, you know, a body like mine was seen as an ideal. And then through that, I watched Faster Pussycat and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which oh, is still one of my favorite films. films of all time. Brilliant. And and I was able to kind of see myself as desirable. And that I think that went a long way in sort of my self-esteem journey is if we're having that conversation. But we're not. And anyway, um <laughs> Tangents, tangents, tangents. Uh, but yeah, so we were a bunch of weird, dark people. Yeah. And that came through with Scissor Sisters as well. Right, right, we right. We were a bunch of weird, dark people. <laughs> <laughs> and when you decided to uh, perform, yeah, uh, I think we discussed this before, uh, you got signed pretty quickly, didn't you? When when Scissors got together, we yeah, it was about let's see, it was the end of two thousand one that I joined. They started making music in like the summer of two thousand one, I think. Yeah. And then um December two thousand one I joined. Two thousand two basically was the year we got Dell. Um and then yeah, I think it was yeah, that was the year that the boys went to Sonar. We had our first release on A Touch of Class, uh, which was a small dance label here in New York. And, uh, and then we got a manager. And Neil, our first manager, really put in the work. And right. he had worked for Jive Records for many years. All right, so yeah, he had yeah, a yeah. real knowledge of the of the uh, landscape. And, uh, and then once... So uh, our first single was a song called Electrobics and the Comfortably Numb cover was the B-side. Right, and right. the uh, A Touch of Class were uh, Oliver Oliver, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Damn it. Um, Dominic. Dominic. And uh, they were uh, DJs as well. And so they would DJ our stuff. This is the ele- kind of the Electroclash era and all of that. Um, and then Pete Tong played Comfortably Numb on his radio show. And then it was, it was, a we were, then we were being courted properly. And yeah. uh, it was between Polydor and Wall of Sound. Those were the two big. Wall of Sound, my mate. 
Who, Mark um, Jones? Yeah, yeah, Mark Jones, yeah. <laughs> he's bonkers. You speak I of mean, bonkers. Uh, yeah, he's he's not unfortunately he's not he's not well at the moment, but um um but yeah he was that was a huge label i mean indie label at the time yes yeah so it was kind of the 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 sort of question for the band was do we go indie or do we see how big this can go and the yeah then it was let's see how big this can go and how big did it get and how quickly yeah it was pretty crazy our first uh you know our first tour of the uk was with zoot woman um stuart price a.k.a. Lay Rhythm Digital, and his mates, Johnny uh, and Johnny's brother, whose name escapes me. Um, and uh, that was a great, that was a great tour. We had a great, a great time. And uh, that was near the end of 2003. And then our record hit that February, 2004. And then it was, you know, the, the sort of, the grind as you as you yeah, know it yeah. to be the interviews and the gigs and the let's see you know it's like throw throw all the band spaghetti onto the wall and see what sticks yeah strike while the iron's hot to mix a metaphor you've got you feel absolutely. like you feel like if you don't do everything right at that moment then you're going to miss some kind of opportunity yeah and it can get really intense i remember at the start of hem 17 we had I didn't have a holiday for three years. Yeah. At all. Yeah. I didn't have a week's holiday anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while to really figure out how to do things too with us because, you know, um, the one difference between me and everybody else in the band is they can roll out of bed and be ready for an interview in five minutes and it takes me two hours. Yeah. So if we have a call time at 830 for an interview, I have to get up at 630 and if we're taping the night before till 10 you know it's so it, it, there was a there was some there was some uh figuring out to do with things like that and uh and yeah you have to take every opportunity and we were just solidly gone for yeah. 18 months pretty much uh yeah, breaking yeah. that record it took six months for people i think to really understand us as a band because we had there were there there were two Scissor Sisters. There was the Scissor Sisters on record, which mm -hmm. was basically Jake and Baby Daddy. And then there was the Scissor Sisters on stage, which was uh, everybody else, them and everybody else. Um, and so uh, the the Scissor Sisters on stage is really, I think, what... It, it, we performed at Glastonbury and then our record went to number one. And then I yeah. think once people saw us live and once people you know once people get this idea of what uh what it really is about um then that's what that's what kind of unlocked yeah. success for us it, uh, what what um that kind of meteoric rise i know it's a cliche but it it creates enormous pressures doesn't it within yes the band yes. so i mean you and also you the the live version uh, as you say as you put it of Scissor Sisters was um, was pretty much what was on the videos as well, correct? Um, what do you? Well, the video the videos featured you and oh yeah, 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 yes, yes. I mean, uh, I was, I was, I mean, it. I had a very strange role in the band, and the best way to describe it is, I was the mascot, and <laughs> and um, and I it 
they I they could make a record without me um, and pretty much did. Um, and then I was called in and flown in at those times when they needed a little extra on a track uh, yeah. and wanted, you know, me to come in and and do something spoken word or um, or, you know, write write the honest song that went on the record. Right, you know. right, right, right. So tell me about those. Uh, I don't want to go into, you know, I, I, this isn't a kiss and tell thing. Actually, it is. Fuck it. Um, how, how, did the, the, how did it disintegrate over time? Um, well, I, you know, I think the, the enormous, the enormous pressure is enormous. And, uh, and as long as you are making money for the record company, you are their darling, mm. you know, and and that's that's the case for anybody. As long as you're selling and moving, shifting units, they're happy. As long as you have hit songs or hit albums, they're happy. Once that doesn't start to happen, then it's tricky. And then there's also the weird the weird math of radio airplay in the UK, which is. Um, to have a number one song, you have to get played on Radio 1. But Radio 1 won't really play you if you're over 30. Yeah, that's right. So, I um, that too, yeah. so on our last record, we're all over 30, well over 30. And so it's not, it's probably not likely that our our record is going to be played on Radio 1. So we're not going to have a number one record. And without that, we're probably going to get dropped. So it's like, so what are we doing here? Mm. Um, and uh, and so it's a it's a a very weird. First of all, the industry is really fucked up and weird. A, yeah. um, and then and uh, yeah, and then B, you know, you the band had gotten to a certain level that when um, the belts starting to have to tighten then things start to go away and that is destabilizing to people. So, um, you know, we're looking at this massive money loss and we had some management fuckery um, with, uh, with our second manager um, that took our third manager some interesting and really fucked up accounting to, um, to remedy. And um, yeah, and so money, money really fucked us as well. All right. And I'm really impressed with the number of fucks you managed to get into that last paragraph it was really good. You're Thank welcome. You. It was really <laughs> fucked. It was it was so fucked that um I don't really have a relationship with the people in my band that's, anymore. That's really sad. That's really sad because you made some great, literally great pop records mm -hmm. and your performances were exceptional. You're gorgeous. Let's just say it like Thank it you. is. And uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and actually, you know, you're all interesting characters in your own right. But yeah. I mean, I think, you know, nobody's more interesting than you in that entire scenario. There was, I, I, I think back to people like, the, like Roxy Music when Brian Eno mm. left, because it struck me that Eno was uh, constantly upstaging, not deliberately, but was constantly upstaging Brian Ferry, who really wanted to be the centre of attention, yes. like a tr traditional lead singer. And I'm just wondering if there was anything like that kind of thing that might have been going on in your scenario. Yes. 
Okay, good. You yeah. see, I said it, so you can't get into trouble. All you've got to do is agree. It's fantastic. Good. Yes. Okay, so so you've... Uh, this They've stopped before... Well, it all stopped, did it? The, it all the stopped band- in 2012. But So we right. had really... T- it was like 10 solid years of... That's, that's a good run. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Fuck it's it. a long time. And I and the this is the thing that you... I will never, ever, ever, I I don't ever want to seem anything but completely and totally grateful for everything that that experience taught me because it not only taught me so much and gave me so much. I mean, I'm literally sitting in something it gave me. I'm living in what it gave me. Mm -hmm. Um, It gave me a platform to reach so many people and, um, and directly led to uh, me getting a radio show, which is, the happiest I've ever been at a job ever, ever. And I've worked so many jobs, Martin. (laughs) I've done so many things. Um, And uh, because, you know, one thing that we didn't talk was all the way through, um, you know, all the way through Portland and San Francisco and New York. I lived on my own. I supported myself and I supported myself with jobs at Starbucks, at in retail, in, um, you know, I worked in the, the bedding. I worked at Bed Bath and Beyond. I worked at a natural skincare company and wrote their, uh, you know, wrote their product manual. And, um, when scissors first started, I was working at a law firm, um, part-time where my friend Christy Love still works, Tannenbaum helper in Syracuse and Hurstrit. And, um, and my mother, you know, when I was growing up, she wasn't just an icon painter. You don't make a living being an icon painter. She, she was a transcriptionist, a medical transcriptionist. So my whole life I was raised with this notion that yes, you can be an artist, but you better have something to fall back on. Um, because that you will always have to put food on the table and your art is not necessarily guaranteed to put food on the table. Um, so I am, you know, when I got to a point with scissors, uh, where we were successful, I made sure not to take it for granted. And I still don't. And I, you know, I still have the life that I led uh, very much so um, before Scissors took off. You know, I still have the same friend group and, and, um, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't really, I don't really think of myself as a celebrity and I don't really live my life in, in sort of rare, in that rarefied uh, circle of people. It's not really my bag. I just, I would rather just, you know, hang out with mates over a bowl of pasta. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So tell us about your radio show then. Let's get a plug in for that. Yeah. Um, in, um, in 2013, I started doing, um, I started doing one hour radio programs for radio two on, um, on disco and disco is really my passion. And, um, has been for a long time, but it really it it really solidified itself during Scissor Sisters, and then um, um, in my relationship with my husband Seth, who is a massive disco fan as well. Um, it all just and he's a DJ, and and so uh, that whole I started to DJ along with him, and the fa- the, the family that DJs together stays together. <laughs> yeah, to- totally, and. Um, there's a reason there's two decks, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, space for two. Um, 
and um and Seth Seth taught me how to DJ and um and through him and then my own nerd crazy crazy nerdiness um I really got into researching rare groove and all kinds of stuff so I devour I devour disco literature like a fungus devours a really? stump. Yeah, no, I do. I love re- I love reading about music and I love reading about um about disco music and dance culture and and I like you know there's you 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 like funk like how great oh, is it to the, discover a funk song that you've never heard before and you you know yeah. you're like wow yes thank you yeah. um, well so do you want to become the world's leading authority on disco and funk no i mean i just want to i just want to preach the gospel <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough i mean my I, you know um i couldn't be happier where i am and so which uh, the my time at Radio 2 led to a show. It started in 2017, and it was all disco from the 70s and 80s. Then that um, expanded in 2018 to um, to all dance music. And, um, and now uh, it is primarily kind of 90s and noughties, uh, the stuff that was really big in the UK when rave culture first broke at in the late eighties. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I play, I'm the motto of the show is we'll dance to anything. And, um, and it's really funny because I find myself making mixes of music. I would never, never DJ out, you know, I would never play Hadaway. What is love? Baby, oh. hurt me. You know, I would never do that. But when you're when you're making a radio show to come off the back of Eurovision, what are you gonna play? Of course you're gonna like the you know the most like Euro trashiest, ridiculous, funniest stuff. You know, I made an Ibiza mix the other week that was just had me cracking up because it was. You know what the fuck? Those like the, those crazy, ridiculous <laughs> songs that you hear from Ibiza. But I, I, I have love to, it. I've got, I have to ask you a question. Sorry to interrupt. No. The, have you ever considered acting? Oh, I mean, I was an actor in high school, and I've I've definitely acted. But I'll tell you. Okay, here's a fun story, and I actually told this on my other on my, on my friends my other friends podcast. But I'll tell you because I don't know if there'll be much of an overlap. No. But um, it's. 20, it's 2005. Scissor Sisters uh, has performed at Live Eight in Hyde Park, and uh, we're fresh off stage. I'm super excited. I have to pee, so I run off and uh, take care of my business. And I come back, and uh, and I see Jake. And Jake, you know, has big eyes, very expressive, yeah. and they are just like at their widest, looking at this woman, and she's got her back turned to me and she's gesticulating wildly. And Neil, our manager at the time says, Anna, help me out here. He's like, I know I'm supposed to recognize the woman who is speaking to Jake at this moment in time, but I can't place her. Can you, can you just like go over there and, and tell me who that is? And I go over and I look and you know, I have to, and the, all the, like the, the shock just like sets through my body because he is talking to Faye Dunaway or should I say Faye Dunaway is talking to Jake. 
And so I like, I like, you know, slink back to Neil. And I'm like, Neil, you fucking idiot. That's mommy <laughs> dearest. And, um, and, uh, and then Jake, I'm looking at them and Jake catches my eye and he's like, oh my God, Anna, you have to meet. And as soon as he says that, she whips around and it's, you know, yeah. fucking Faye Dunaway. And she's like, I love you. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm like, oh my God, it's Faye Dunaway. And I'm like, thank, thank you. And then her second, the second thing Faye Dunaway says to me is, I have a part in a movie for you. No. And I just kind of, it's one of those moments where you kind of like, and the whole day was surreal anyway. Like Paul McCartney asked me for my autograph, you know, like what? (laughs) I got asked for my autograph by a beetle. What the fuck is going on? What is today? You know? And then, so I just kind of like look around and I'm like, you, you, you do. And so, (laughs) So, yeah. And then and then the third thing she said was, yeah. And uh, well, I think it was the third thing. Maybe the fourth thing was I I learned about your music from the Sultan of Brunei. Have you met the Sultan of Brunei? And then she gestures over to this young guy who looks like he's about 25 and, you know, just jeans and trainers and a, and yeah. a hoodie and like, hey, man, Sultan of Brunei, how are you doing? Like, what oh, is cool. what is happening? And then, so yeah, so I stayed in touch with Faye Dunaway and I auditioned for a film and it never got made. It was the um, film version of Terrence, Terrence McNally, I think, or was it Terrence? I think it's Terrence McNally's Masterclass, which is about uh, Maria Callas teaching kids how to sing opera and uh or teaching a master class to opera singers and she wanted me to be she had me read for a cuban character i'm like lady what what about i yeah she's like she's a quote-unquote fiery character so that must have been why she thought of me however clearly i wasn't i'm not right for the part but she came to a show she came to a scissors show at mercury lounge which is maybe like 600 people maybe like I don't even think so maybe like 300 and she like shows up and I deposit her in my group of friends and then suddenly like there's Faye Dunaway surrounded by all these like gorgeous 20 something young gay men and I'm just like (laughs) she's in heaven they're in heaven everybody's everybody (laughs) wins it was great but I actually I I'm I don't think I don't think acting is for me. I do really enjoy it. Um, but the audition process is really soul sucking. I was looking, I was, I remember sitting in the, in the, in the, um, outside waiting to be called to read for this part. And I was looking at everybody else, all the other women in the room thinking, is she reading for my part? Oh yeah. Does she, does she she think she knows this character like I do and it's like this constant like measuring yourself up against other people and in acting there's you know there's very little power you have to be picked and so I think that that was that would be something that I would struggle with um and uh and it's it's you have a great strong personality and look so there are, I'm sure there are roles out there that I think you'd be good at it. You've got a great voice. I well, mean, not you. just singing voice. I mean, your speaking voice is 
Oh, I love this word, mellifluent. Oh, yes, yeah. mellifluent, yes. Yeah. <laughs> mellifluous uh, is a fun word as well. Yeah, mellifluous, yeah. Um, but yeah, then, I well, love I love it, and I love being on set. I loved filming videos and doing all that stuff, yeah. and Seth is a filmmaker, and I really enjoy, I really enjoy that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I think you should. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's move on to uh, to uh, well, let's move on to robots, I suppose. Okay. Because uh, you've you wrote a book about robots, I, didn't you? I wrote a book about robots that came out in 2015, um, called Robot Takeover: 100 Iconic Robots of Myth, Popular Culture, and Real Life. Um, and it was it was a a project where I, at that time, endeavored to list the 100 greatest robots of all time. And that's a, actually turned out to be a little bit more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Because unlike some aspects of science fiction, robots are real and, and they're here. And there are robots in fiction that are informed by robots in real life. And you can't talk about them you can't talk about that one robot without talking about the other. Oh, right, yeah. And yeah. so, um, and then there are things like, you know, I, I felt very strongly that you couldn't, t robots are uh, not only a thing that we talk about uh, in fiction, um, they're not only real, they are visual. So you have... You have something, you have, you know, robot representation in music. Um, uh, you have Hajime Soriyama's Sexy Robot, which is one of the most iconic advertising images ever. And, um, and he designed the, uh, the, the dog, Sony dog robot. Um, and, um, and then, you know, you can't have a list of the 100 greatest robots of all time and leave Kraftwerk off the list. Because they yeah. are, you know, they're the ultimate. We have a robot dance, and we have. There's all kinds of, all kinds of things that we talk about when we're talking about robots, and all these different ways that they've sort of um, uh, become a part of of society and and expression. Yeah. And I felt I would be remiss if I didn't try and cover all of them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so. Um, it was yeah. 65 fictional robots and 35 real robots on my list of 100. But then, of course, you know, there's all kinds of cheating. So R2-D2 and C-3PO are one entry. Um, oh, right. All right. Yeah. What, oh what, was your, what, what is your favorite robot? Then? Um, I don't I don't really. I mean, I don't really. My favorite. I'll tell you what my favorite yes. is. Shall I? Uh, it's got to be Robbie the Robot. Oh well, we love Robbie the robot. Robbie the robot is the only um, is the only robot that is listed. He has his own IMDb IMDb page. He's the only robot suit that is listed as his own actor, which is fabulous because he shows up in all these other other yeah yeah TVs. So he he's the only robot suit basically a robot uh with his own imdb page which is pretty fabulous um Excellent. i mean c-3po and r2d2 were my first sort of robot loves and i always say that c-3po reminded me of my dad um dad number one <laughs> which he which he did and um 
Uh, so I do love C-3PO. And, um, Did he walk like that? He was kind of stiff. He was very, um, he was very, like, very deliberate in his, in his carriage. Yes. Right. Um, but he was, uh, very, quite proper and, and, like, you know, kept... Yeah, formal. Formal. Yeah, he had it. He was very, very, he, totally about protocol. Um, oh. and, um, and, uh, fastidious. Fastidious is a great word. For fastidious. Him. That's yes. another good word. Yeah, we love that. Yeah. And um, so tell us about the, the stuff. We're getting close to the end now. Uh, tell us about the stuff with um, that we've been discussing over the last while about this fantastic uh, live experience stuff that you do with your husband, Seth. Yeah. Um, Seth, my husband, is an amazing visual uh, wizard. <laughs> he can He can pretty much do... He can make anything. He's one of those people that uh, is fluent in stereo instructions. So you, he opens up a manual and then like can read it and then operate whatever piece of equipment it is. Like he's been using it for ten years. Um, but he in uh, it was right around two thousand <clears throat> two thousand five two thousand six. He started getting into um, into psychedelic light shows and old old school style animal yeah, light shows that. and um this was right around the time that um there was a resurgence of this group the joshua light show and the joshua light show uh was the resident psychedelic light show at the fillmore east in new york um, from 1969 to 1974, thereabouts. They were a permanent installation at the theater, and they they performed... Anybody who performed at the Fillmore East, they backed them. So if it was Yayoi Kusama or Jefferson Airplane, The Doors, The Who, everyone who played, uh, they were doing the the lights and visuals behind them. And when we talk about um, the Joshua Light Show, uh, there are several things that we talk about. We talk about projections from um, projectors, classic stuff like film loops and slides, slide projectors. Yeah. But then you also talk about all this visual stuff that is done uh, with mirrors, with prisms, with lenses, and then you, the stuff that I work on, which is liquids. And um, the... the it, it's basically like a a lava lamp that you can manipulate. That's the easiest way for me to oh. describe it. Um, and I work on an overhead projector that's a flat projector, like it has a tabletop. And um, I work with dishes that are glass and flat bottomed. And then there's a lens that projects it up onto the um, up onto the screen. And have I, you got? Sorry to interrupt. Have yeah. you got any video of your process of you doing this? Um, Rather, I've seen videos of it in effects and it looks amazing, but I've never, it would be really interesting to see how you manipulate things. There is a video online of the Joshua Light Show at the Exploratorium, which is a, a venue in um, San Francisco. And right. we performed with a group called Moon Duo and they sh show both the uh, stage and the backs the the station oh, cool. so you can kind of see it but because it happens in dark you don't really get a a right. full look at the process and right. we are we we can be kind of secretive about that as well my my husband says 
I don't discuss my process unless we've had breakfast. <laughs> and so wow. he's like, I'll discuss. Okay. So obviously, Martin, he would discuss process with you because we have yeah, yeah, well, several yeah, yeah. meals together. I'm hoping that having breakfast isn't some kind of simile for having sex. That's all I'm worried no, about. No, it just implies that you've had dinner the night before, usually. Oh, right. Oh, so, well, I see. Um, oh, thank God. So, uh, <laughs> or that you've been you've been on a job and you're waking yeah. up in the same space or Very. something like that. It, it does. Well, we. we Sorry, we no. still have to do something together, yes, right? Yes, we absolutely do. I would love to. And uh, I did actually ask the lady at Elfville Harmony, but I, um, because of all this COVID stuff, I didn't bother chasing her. She's probably not back at work, to be honest. Well, and, uh, and I, um, the the beauty of this is that we we could actually do it remotely, and um, and oh, yeah. uh, that is something that actually you know in 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 this. COVID times, everybody's kind of, um, uh, it's a time of recontextualizing what we do. Oh, my God. Or trying to make something work anyway. I went to the Venice Opera House in Venice Mm. uh, when they just reopened. Uh, This was about a month ago. They'd moved, you know, like it's a traditional opera house. It's got stalls. It's got five tiers of private boxes and a proscenium march deep stage. So what they've done is they've taken all the uh, stall seats out. They've moved socially distanced armchairs onto the stage for the audience. And it's either one, two, or maybe a family of, of, of people in each box. Uh-huh. So the, 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 the capacity has changed from 1250, I think, to something like, 200 maximum yeah it was quite something to look at uh but it sounded shit because all the uh, all all the bodies had gone which normally absorb some of the acoustic energy Mm -hmm. and so the the sound was just kind of rattling around it sounded like putting on a gig in an ikea warehouse you know yeah it didn't it didn't really work, and uh, it was a bit sad. So I'm I'm very concerned about live performance in the in the time of COVID. I have yeah. to say. Yeah, um, I mean, I think maybe it isn't something that happens live. It's pre-recorded and then shown, or you know, it's, um, uh, something like that. Or it, it's maybe not necessarily a performance, more more of an installation. You know, that an experience, an experience. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're we're gonna wrap it up shortly so uh i ask everybody a couple of questions that okay. are, uh the same just so i can get a kind of comparison um what's your favorite book apart from your own <laughs> okay um i think my favorite book is i would have to say it's love saves the day uh by tim lawrence which is a history of disco in New York City. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know about that book. I'll have to, it's I'll have to read great. It's really good. It's great. Is it? And your favorite film of all time? Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, my God. I love that. that or, is... or, eight and a, or Eight and a Half La Dolce Vita. I don't know. La yeah. Dolce Vita, maybe. I think Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is pretty pretty good. I mean, it's the one that I, I, I've probably seen it the most. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. And um, and if you had to pick one one TV show, what would it be? 
there was an influence on you or, or something that you used to love from your childhood or something. Well, the bionic woman, Haida. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking favorite robot, I see it whenever people say, well, who's your favorite robot? I don't say the bionic woman because she's a cyborg, not a robot. But really, ultimately, that's my that's my favorite robotic character from fiction is the bionic woman. And what inspired your tattoo on your arm that I'm looking the at? The bionic right? woman. <laughs> it's my bionic arm. So um, bionic. there are little pieces of, of all of my favorite robots. There's some C-3PO and R2-D2 is the hydraulics. And, cool. Um, yeah. And then it was originally inspired by a packet of uh, bionic woman rub-on stickers, rub-on <laughs> tattoos and stickers. And... Um, yeah, there's just little bits and pieces uh, and stuff. And I've got an integrated circuit, which is an old school style of uh, computer brain. And inside the integrated circuit is the golden mean. So it's a little bit of geometry, wow. nerdy, nerdy. Have you ever thought about bo uh, body altering at all? I, I don't think I'm a very good candidate for it because I have an allergy to most metals. Oh. So I feel like my body wouldn't do well with enhancements, unfortunately. But, but I'm, I'm really interested in things like um, uh, brain, brain emulation software and wetware and things like, you know, downloading your consciousness and all of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it's it's beyond robots um but um but yeah there's a whole there's a whole uh subsection of of the study transhumanism that is totally mind-blowing and fascinating and i love reading about that stuff oh yeah transhumanism and final question if you were to design a robot which what would it look like um well piaggio who makes um who makes scooters yeah yeah they have designed a robotic suitcase and that's what i would have i would have a robotic suitcase <laughs> um it would uh it and theirs is quite small and it's it looks like a drum kind of and it rolls i think it i don't know how it moves but anyway but it would be it would be a robotic suitcase and it would just like follow it would take itself upstairs i wouldn't have to carry it upstairs um yeah and i i wouldn't really have to do anything so that that's what I would have first. That's the most basic need. <laughs> okay, and then, I don't know, a robot who could help me garden, like get, get in the weeds and stuff uh, like that. Yeah. Or, and then third would be like a gigantic robot that could m destroy the whole of mankind. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really into robots in that sense. No, I know. No. I, know. I, I, let, I let men tell those stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic talk. Oh, talk? thank you. What a fantastic speechifying that was. I oh, loved it. Good. And I'm definitely going to make this the first episode. Oh, I think, okay. Because you are just so entertaining. Thank and you. Wonderful. I and I love you to death. I love you too. And um, we've got to have some fun soon. I wish you were out in Venice with me next week. But, I know. Um, I know. I mean, I don't think, I, I really don't think that there's going to be any traveling until next year, which is is uh, sad on the one hand, but also, you know, I have often wished for um, long stretches of time at home. And yeah. now, and it's kind yeah. of like this watch what you wish for, you just might get it kind of kind of thing. Um, yeah. but I am 
Uh, I, even though it is a difficult time, I'm also trying to make the most of it. And, um, you know, Seth is getting a lot of work done on the house, which is great. We've been renovating a house since 2008. Um, so, uh, we're getting ever more close to that. And I, uh, I've been working on a research project that I really uh, enjoy and we'll have some things to talk to you on that one eventually. But and then um, (laughs) weirdly, I'm also getting into growing mushrooms. Um, Oh, I love mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've psychedelic mushrooms. No, no. Edible mushrooms. So I, uh, I started with pink oyster mushrooms and uh, coming up, I'm going to be. Uh, trying my hand at lion's mane and shiitake and then uh, some blue oyster mushrooms as well. So uh, Seth and I have already talked about growing, uh, putting a little grow room um, out back. (laughs) So Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a a very specific thing. Yeah. You've got light, but interestingly enough, still about networked intelligence. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Mycelium, artificial neural networks, very similar. Oh, neural networks, right, right, right. <clears throat> Mycelium networks, internet, oh, you know, yeah. um, all that stuff. So wow. anyway, but um, you have to, you have to, uh, uh, you have to control the airflow, the humidity, the temperature, the light. So if you, you know, and those are those are thingy, but it's not impossible. And if you figure those things out then your production is pretty, is pretty regular. Okay. And I'm only making, I'm just making them for, for yeah, yeah. the household to eat, wow. but it's, uh, so yeah. If we yeah. ever go to, if we ever get to Mars, then um, we need people like you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Animatronic. My kind of gal, I have to say. She's just something else. The, the the whole thing about her obsession with robotics. And she's even got tattoos and stuff like that with robots on. It's so cool. Um, and the stuff that she's doing currently with all the live performance stuff with her husband. I really love all that stuff. Anyway, as I mentioned before, please contact me on electronicallymartin at gmail.com. I'm going to be releasing quite a few podcasts in the next few weeks. Try and get the visitor numbers up as uh, soon as I can. And uh, today's synth noodle comes by courtesy of the most fantastic and my most popular... That's not right, is it? Popular with me, anyway. My favourite synth, which is the Roland System 100, which was originally um, brought out in the mid-70s. And I'm looking at it right here in my studio, and it's a thing of beauty. And it's still the best-sounding synthesizer I've ever used. So this is just me messing about on the System 100. See you later.